The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through mission, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Reading for this morning is from Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere... What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell you of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The book of Hebrews, which is one of my all-time favorites, is this point in which beautifully and with great detail, the author, the letter of Hebrews, takes all of the themes, all of the people, all of the uh, the ideas written throughout Scripture, and he goes through systematically. The author goes through and points out how Jesus is true and better than those themes. It's exactly what we find in our text today, that Jesus is true and better. If you'll keep your order of worship handy, it's Hebrews 2. 5 through 18, and it's on the back of your bulletin. Before we dive in, I just want you to consider this. Hebrews was written to the church who was scattered and they were suffering. In fact, under the under Nero, they were being persecuted and they were having family members put to death. Why would the people who are being scattered and persecuted, why would the people who are suffering be somebody that needed to remind themselves, be reminded that Jesus is true and better? Ted Strawbridge said it like this, The world is not merely what we see. There are more things going on than our present physical experience. My physical pain is not everything. Where does that land for you this morning? Where do you need to be reminded that whatever it is that you're battling with, 
there is actually something larger going on that you can't see that would bring you comfort. So let's pray and ask God to bless our study of His Word this morning. Father, we do thank You and praise You for Your Word and Your Holy Spirit. We ask, God, that You would bless us, that You would fill this room with Your Holy Spirit. That in the midst of our own suffering and trials, that we would be given hope. Lord, would You have mercy on me, a sinner. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. One of my all-time favorite movies is a movie called A Time to Kill. It's based off of the work of John Grisham and it tells the story of Carly Haley. Carly Haley's daughter in Mississippi is kidnapped and assaulted. Ultimately, they throw her into a river trying to kill her. She doesn't die. She's rescued. She's seriously, seriously wounded. Carly Haley, her father, cannot Take the racism that caused this. It's played by Samuel L. Jackson. Cannot take that white supremacists would do this to his little girl. And so he waits for just the right time when they're going to be arraigned. And he comes into the room. And he shoots these two guys and kills them. The rest of the movie is sort of the trial that takes place. Whether Carly Haley, this African American man in Mississippi, will be acquitted. Or whether he'll be sent to the death penalty. Because in his anger, in his desire for justice for his daughter, he killed the two white supremacists who hurt and tried to kill his daughter. It's a very tense and difficult and yet redeeming and beautiful story. There's a scene where Jake Brigand, his lawyer, who's played by Matthew McConaughey, I feel like we're talking about Samuel L. Jackson, Carly Haley's in prison. He's talking to Jake Brigant. And Jake is trying to make Carly Haley see that it's going to be difficult to win this case. And he says, listen to me. We're friends. And Carly Haley says back to him, Jake, we ain't friends. You don't hang on the same part of town that I hang on. You probably don't even know where my house is. Our daughters ain't ever going to play together. McConaughey sits there stunned and offended. He doesn't understand what he's being told, but ultimately Samuel L. Jackson's point, Carly Haley's point, is is that you don't know my world enough to rescue me. You don't know my problems enough personally and intimately to be my hero. You're not close enough. You don't know what it's like. And ultimately, there is a temptation for us to wander around this world, to look at God and say, you don't know what it's like for me. You don't know how difficult things have been. You don't know how hard my story is. You don't know what it's like for me. And then we have this beautiful passage. Hebrews 2, one of the greatest passages in all the Bible, where the author works through systematically over and over again just how much Jesus knows what it's like to be. 
you've ever felt like God is far off and you couldn't quite possibly understand, this temple is for you. We see throughout the passage that Jesus is a better man. He's a better king. He's a better Moses. He's a better David. He's a better prophet. He's a better priest. He's a better brother. And we're going to walk through some of these together. This passage is so beautiful, it's it's hard to take it and put it into the neat little format of three points because the author just keeps going and going and going. And so we're going to walk through this together. But first of all, and maybe surprisingly, the author shows us that Jesus is a better man. A better man. Look with me in verses 5-8. through For it was not angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. It sounds like if you jump a little forward that it's talking about Jesus, but that's not what it's talking about. Not right there anyway. You see, these people who were suffering and struggling and wounded and scattered were hoping that angels might come in, that angels, powerful warriors of light, would come and involve themselves in the affairs of men and that they would make things right. These hosts of angels would come in and that they would set things right for good and forever. says, friends, it's not angels who are going to rule over everything. It's you. You're the one. Now can you imagine being trapped in your house, afraid you'll be killed for your faith, afraid that God has forgotten you, feeling left out, feeling overlooked, and you're reminded that even as small as your story, as hard as your story seems right now, that there's more coming for you. In fact, there's so much more coming. Not angels, but you are going to reign in heaven with Christ. What comfort that would be. You'd think, my story doesn't matter. My story doesn't mean anything. And he's saying, your story matters. You matter. And there is more yet to come. And I say that to you who might have different sufferings than they had then, but it's so easy for one of us, any one of us, to look at our sufferings, our difficulties, our loneliness, our infertility, our poverty, our physical ailments, our depression and our anxiety, and to feel it just doesn't, my story doesn't matter. This is as good as it's going to get. There's nothing more that could make this better. And the Bible speaks and says, friend, there is more yet coming. This isn't the end of your story, and you matter. The reason that I know that it's about, really, ultimately, man ruling and not angels is this. Do you remember back in the beginning, Genesis 1, 26-28? He says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. 
And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Ultimately, Jesus is saying what you were called to in the beginning with Adam, to subdue and to rule and to reign in righteousness, bringing good and blessing, what you were called to in the beginning that you couldn't quite get done because of Jesus, that's what you have ahead of you. That you will reign. That your story matters. That you have more ahead of you than you do behind you. And so when he comes to this, this point where he says, for it's not angels that God subjected to the world to come. He says it's not us floating beings with wings and harps that they're going to rule in heaven. That's what we have in our heads. He said that's not it. He says, for it was not angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. And it's been testified and he goes to Psalm 8. Well, Psalm 8 says, What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. What he's saying is that your role is more significant than angels. In seminary, one of my professors wanted us to kind of understand the significance of angels and how powerful and scary that they were, and yet that they knew their place. And in, throughout Scripture, oftentimes you'll see an angel pop onto the scene, and what do they always do when you see an angel pop onto the scene? They hit the deck. They're like, oh, this is it for me. And they hit the deck. And if you look carefully, every single time the angel's like, whoa, 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 get up. You can't look at me. That's not who I am. Get up. Get up. So my professor was standing and teaching, and he had me come and lay at his feet for like 10 minutes while he was talking about this. And he wasn't actually asking me to worship him. But he just wanted to give everyone the sense that an angel is immediately uncomfortable with someone laying at his feet because they weren't made for worship. They were made to worship. let me sit with you. And yet he shows us these examples of throughout Scripture, maybe even in Revelation 22, he says, I'm John, the one who stirred and heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things, but he said to me, do not do that. Do not do that. For I am a fellow servant of yours. What he's saying over and over again is Angels know their place. And even though they're stronger than us, the angels are not who will rule the world. We will. Who run the world? Girls and boys. He's saying, you are heirs. You are princes and princesses. You will make blessing. You will bring good you will rule and subdue. So whatever, however small you think the story is right now, there's more coming. He's saying, who will rule the world? You will. And it said, and the reason that you're going to be able to rule the world is because of the true man, the better man. Look in six. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. 
putting everything in subjection under His feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside of His control. And He goes, He goes, I get it, Jacob. My presence, we do not see everything in subjection to Him. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. What He's saying is that of course I know it doesn't feel like everything is under your subjection. Of course I know that it doesn't feel like your rule, your reign is blessed. But he said, you can't see it now. You can't see it now, but it's true. And even though you can't see it now, you can see Jesus. So he's telling you to look up from your disappointment, your feelings of impotency, insignificance. Look up from them and say, I can't see how we could possibly be ruling and reigning someday with Christ and say, I know you can't, but you can see Jesus. We're not always sure someone is in control. We can't quite make it out, but we can see Jesus. And how did He do this? How did He do this incredible thing of turning weak people like us into princes and princesses? How did He do it? Now putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside of His control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to Him, but we see Him who for a little while was made lower, than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. How did Jesus secure the fact that you would reign with Him and rule with Him in the heavens to come and not angels? He did it through suffering and through death. What comfort do you think suffering and death of watching our Savior would be for a church who was on the run and discouraged and persecuted and felt insignificant And yet they have this Savior who knows what it's like to feel small. Who knows what it's like to suffer. Who knows what it's like to limp. And if they can see Jesus and see His road through suffering and His road through death, maybe they'd be reminded that they still have a road ahead of them too. That their suffering has meaning. Jesus is the better man. He's the better Adam. Adam couldn't get it done. Jesus can. We can't get it done. Jesus can. Ultimately, it's saying, because of Jesus, we will rule and reign. Not going to be as insignificant and small as you feel. Again, Ted Strawbridge said it like this. In the midst of your hurting and your suffering, The world is not nearly what you think. This physical life is not the entire entire summary of what's out there. The snow is going to melt. You have not been forgotten. You have not been lost. Friends, you matter. And the best parts of your story are ahead of you, not behind you. Even though it doesn't feel like it yet, just a better man. He's also a better king. Look with me in verses 9 and 10. But we see Him for a little while who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that He whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation 
perfect through suffering. Those words are weird for us because we think, isn't Jesus already perfect? How is He made perfect? What that word also means is complete or full. And it's what we were talking about earlier. That Jesus is a more complete, more full Savior. Because not only would He rescue all of us, He would do it in the midst of suffering and death that we would choose to go through. And He's a better King. The Old Testament is riddled with the idea that Israel needed a better King. Israel needed a better prophet. Looking 10, it's sort of referencing Moses here as, as well as David, for it is fitting that he in whom all things exist, bringing many sons to glory. So Jesus leading this parade to the promised land, do you see that? Should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For if he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, look with me in 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's Moses and that's David. Moses couldn't lead God's people to the promised land because he claimed to be God. Jesus can lead you into heaven because he is God. David stayed near his throne room to take whatever he wants. Jesus left his throne room to give you all that he has. David stayed home from battle, avoiding the enemy, and Jesus left his home to run straight toward the enemy. You see how he's stringing this together and he's letting you know that everything you see in the Old Testament is ultimately better and more true and fuller because Jesus has made it so. Jesus will bring the many sons and daughters to glory. What it's saying to these feeble people who are hurting under Nero is saying, friends, I know you can't see it now, but glory is coming. That Jesus is leading us on our way through this painful 80, 90, 100 years of life, and that glory is coming. That just as Moses couldn't get them into the promised land, he had to wait outside. Jesus will usher us right into the promised land, heaven. And he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes, dignifying our pain. He will get you there. And I know that you're facing heavy things. I know every Sunday morning when you get up, it rolls through your head. because we need to be reminded that there's more yet to come. He's a better Moses. He will get you to the promised land. He's a better king. He laid down his life instead of took up his privileges. He's a better warrior. It says it in 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He runs straight towards destroying the work of the devil for you. David stayed home from the battle, avoiding the enemy, and Jesus left his home to run straight for the enemy. Why that's supposed to be an encouragement to you today is not quite what you think. Our sin, our flesh, the devil, we're not fighting on our own. As hard as it may seem, Jesus 
better king, a better Moses, a better David, a better representative, a better warrior. And then it blows our minds to say Jesus is a better brother. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Can you imagine? If there is one thing that you think about that Jesus feels for you, do you know what it is? It's shame. This is sort of what it sounds like in our head. You should have done better. You should have stopped that sin. I can't believe you're still doing this. I can't believe you've run back to this. You still aren't praying. You still aren't reading. You still aren't serving. You should have done better. You should have been more. That's what it sounds like in our heads. But the Bible says that's not true. It says as Jesus does the work of salvation, He looks fondly at all of us and says, I'm not ashamed of you. I am not ashamed of you. The very things that you did are the things that caused me to run for you, to rescue you. I'm not ashamed of you, brothers and sisters. We could spend 40 minutes just on that. Jesus is not ashamed of us. In fact, it has this cool, all these cool quotes strung together. Verse 12, verse 13, verse 13 again. And one of them, he's he's quoting from Psalm 22, and he's saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation, and I will sing your praise. It's this beautiful picture from Psalm 22 where Jesus is sort of leading us into the sanctuary, and he's introducing us to his Father. And Jesus is leading the singing. Now, I know William has an amazing voice, but can you imagine when Jesus is leading the singing? And he says, I will tell, I will tell my brothers and sisters, because he's not ashamed of us, he will tell us about the Father. He's not ashamed to be called brother. You and me. This powerful scene in Spartacus. This famous scene in a 1960 movie. And Kirk Douglas has played this slave leader throughout And he's leading this sort of rebellion to set the slaves free. And finally, they round up a bunch of Kirk Douglas's and his colleagues. And a Roman general announces to a group of former slaves that unless they identify who Spartacus actually is, they'll all be crucified. Douglas is about to stand up and honestly identify himself. And he starts to stand up and the guy next to him stands up and says, I'm Spartacus. And then someone else stands up and says, I'm Spartacus. And then someone else stands up and says, I'm Spartacus. And it's this beautiful fraternity of brothers who's saying, what happened to you will happen to me. Well, the story of Jesus is even more profound. The Father comes and says, who is the one that was the sinner? Who is the one who wronged the law? Who is the one who did whatever they want and acted selfishly? They're going to be dealt with. And instead of standing up one by one, we all stayed seated and looked around terrified. And yet there was one who stood up 
and said, I'm the one you're looking for. I'm the one you'll discipline. I'm the one that you'll punish. While we all stayed seated. And he did that because he's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of me. Can you imagine a more glorious phrase in the Bible that he's not ashamed to call them brother? He's the brother that you've been looking for. The older brother who's not legalistic and thinks it has it all together and is sort of smug because his life went better than yours. He's the older brother who looks after the little guy. Who put himself in the place of danger. And then he says, he's a better father. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So he's this brother that says, I'm not ashamed of you, brothers and sisters. That is encouraging and that is wonderful. That is different than we expect him to be, but we still have this sin problem. And yet the text says, he knows. And that's why he's also a better priest. Because he's merciful and he's faithful. Merciful and faithful. Merciful means that he has compassion on us, sees us in our need, and faithful is that he will actually go and do something about it. There was a time when I was in Houston and I was coming back from driving to lunch with my boss. And just as we were turning onto our main road, Silver, just coming back from lunch, all of a sudden we're kind of turning and as we start to turn, the car is faced at and there is a homeless man who has fallen out of his wheelchair and is laying on the ground. Of course he comes to a stop and it's surreal. You're looking to the right or the left like, what has happened? regardless of our character, that we just put a blinker on, turn blind, and aren't moving forward? Of course not. My friend threw on his hazards and threw the car in park, and we went and picked him up and stood up his wheelchair and placed him back in the wheelchair and moved him on, and it's because we saw that that man could not help himself. It was compassion that moved us. Can you imagine how much more compassion the big brother, the, the perfect priest has as he sees you knocked over and you can't do anything to right your situation and he doesn't just feel it, he moves toward you. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. And I want you to see this. We said, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and high, merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Some of the translations say atonement for the sins of the people, but that's not quite what it has. Propitiation is this idea that he has taken the full wrath of God and he's turned it on himself so that not one ounce of it will land on you. So because God is just and holy, he has to deal with sin. But because he loves us, he chooses to deal with sin by pouring wrath out on his own son. Here's what it's really saying to you. It's basically saying that he put away the wrath of God so that there would be none left for you to bear. He takes it all on the cross. All the wrath, all the darkness, all the suffering, all the, all the being whipped and being spit on. 
He takes all of that so that once He dies, there is not one ounce of wrath left for you. And I want you to hear that because we walk around thinking Jesus is ashamed of us and the Bible says, no, He's not. And we walk around thinking Jesus is angry at us and Jesus says, no, I'm not. That anger is gone. It's been turned away. It's been dealt with. This might be the most overlooked reality for Christians in our era. That God's anger at your sin has been put away forever by God, by Christ's death. things that don't belong to you. He paid for all of that through His own blood. He deals with our sin forever. Not just for today, because a city you haven't even gotten to yet. He deals with that forever, but not only that, He's even willing to help us in our temptation. Can you imagine that? He paid for the sin, your first sin to your last sin. Once you haven't even gotten to, He already paid for it, and then He's willing to help us in our temptation. What you'd think is, if He paid for it all, He'd be standing there going, really? I already covered this. I've loved you and pursued you and led you and I've forgiven you and I've accepted you and I've made you at home and you're still running back towards this? No, His posture is entirely different. It's one of help. He says it's because He Himself was tempted. He Himself suffered when He was tempted. He's able to help those who are tempted. Jesus was tempted by the devil. He was tempted by the disciples. He was tempted in the garden. He knew what it was like to be tempted. But unlike us, you never get away from it. You never get away from it. So when you're tempted, whether it's late at night and you're laughing, or whether it's whether or not to tell the truth on your taxes, or whether or not to draw near to someone who you have a broken relationship with and you're tempted to run, you're tempted to do what's selfish instead of what's selfless, I just want you to envision your big brother's arm on your shoulder. Just saying, I've got this. I know what it's like. And even if you fall, Christ will pick up. Even if you fall, Christ will help you. He allows us the freedom to look at temptation and say, not today. Maybe you'll get me tomorrow, but not today. Because the one who's paid for my sin is here rooting for me. And even if I fail, he's got my back anyway. 
He's a better king. He's a better man. He's a better David. He's a better Moses. He's a better brother. He's a better high priest. Because he's made like us in every way. Why? So that he'd get the wrath and we'd get the smile of God. We'll close here. Tim Keller tells the story of Ray Dillard. He's a long-time serving professor at Westminster. They went to one of his sermons. He was nearing the end of his career, Tim and Kathy. And Ray was preaching out of this book, Zechariah 3. It's, it's a prophet. It's Zechariah is sort of transported into the center of the temple. The temple is where the people of God could actually meet with God because God deal, would deal with their sin. And he sees Joshua, the high priest, and he's standing before the Lord. Now, remember, in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple, there's the, inner, there's the outer court, there's the inner court, there's the Holy of Holies, and in the Holy of Holies, there's the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and the presence of God. And it's dangerous to go there. You don't want to go there. You'll die if you go there. One time, one person a year can go in. And guess who that is? It's the high priest. So Dillard's talking through this Zechariah passage, and he sees Zechariah in the Holy of Holies. Now, what you need to know about the Holy of Holies and the high priest, I really want you to hear this. I know it gets lost in the culture. The high priest goes into seclusion before that one day a year. He goes into seclusion for a week. He wouldn't eat or touch anything unclean. He'd only eat clean food, and he'd wash his body and prepare his heart. He'd stay up all the night before reading God's Word. When the day arrives, he bathes and he puts on white linen, and he does an animal sacrifice to pay for his own sin. And then he bathes again in new white linen and sacrifices for the sins of the priest. And then he bathes again in new white linens, of course, and he went in and he made a sacrifice for the sins of the people. This is literally all happening before the people of God. This guy's doing a sacrifice and then getting clean. And doing a sacrifice and getting clean. And it happened in public. It was this thin screen that he would be behind. He was their representative. And so the people would be there in support of him the one time a year he could do this. So Zechariah sees Joshua and Joshua is standing there and instead of bathed over and over again, Joshua is standing there with waste, with excrement on him. And Zechariah is so stressed. He says the people of God would have never let this happen. But God was letting Zechariah see what God saw. Despite all our efforts to be good and moral and clean, just before Zechariah despairs, he hears God and says, Take off your filthy garment. I have taken away your sin. I will bring you rich garments. Bring you my servant. I will remove from you the sin of this land and the sin of the world. And Keller remembers that Ray Dillard, as he's crying toward the end of this sermon, he says, hundreds of years later, another Joshua would come. And he would prepare for a week beforehand, but he would also not sleep on the night before. But instead of people cheering him on, he would be abandoned by his friends and his father. Instead of receiving the words of encouragement, the father would forsake him. Instead of rich clothes, he was stripped naked. He was beaten and naked, and he was bathed too, but in their spit. And that's the high priest you have who goes in and turns the father's wrath away from him. Jesus is true and better. He's a better man, a better king, a better David, a better Moses, a better brother, and a better high priest. 
Meaning when you're filled with guilt and shame, and you're tempted to look at your hands and say, I've not been enough, you get the beauty of looking at the great high priest and said, He paid it all. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not sure what you think about all this, if you're looking for more for your life, rest easy, friend. He's already been looking for you. text like this that just take a breath away. I pray that you've ministered grace to your sin today. That your Holy Spirit would encourage and comfort and lift up their hearts. And instead of looking at themselves, they would bask in looking at you and looking at Christ. In Jesus' name.